0: Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou.
1: And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 7 Fresh Blood. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing suicide, rape, homophobia, racism, the HIV AIDS epidemic from the 80s and 90s throughout most of the episode. If that's not something you want to hear or discuss, you can skip this episode either for now or entirely. We don't mind. We just want you to feel safe and take care of yourselves. Thank you.
0: Well, I don't know about you, but I'd surely feel the weight of the world on my shoulders after this episode.
1: I apparently have this issue where occasionally I try to be smart and watch an episode while I'm at work. And I keep picking episodes that are devastating to do that in. Like, I think we need a new, like, system where, like, before an episode, you can be like, this is work safe or not.
0: I told you that this was a heavy episode. I take no responsibility for this.
1: Even, like, watching it, I'm like, I get it. This is heavy. Yeah, this is, like, Gordon's story. And then, like, the last bloody scene... I did, but I, I didn't trust me. That's the problem. <laughs> I, I overcompensated.
0: Would you like to trust yourself with the recap? Count me down. Three, two, one,
1: go. We start in the middle of a vampire hunt, which seems to go really easy, despite the fact that Dean's a little too close to comfort, if we put it. They eventually catch the vampire, start giving her the usual, like, where's your nest? What's going on? Only to figure out that she really don't know what's going on. Like, this is like... Vampire's first day out and despite this and the fact that she seems so innocent and we never actually see her revert back to her vampire form after that, they still have to do what they have to do, which is already really heavy and difficult to watch. We then find out that, of course, Gordon's in town with his new best friend, Jesus Joe, and they're going to try to kill Sam because Sam's the Antichrist, which I think is the first time they've actually said that out loud in the series. We'll discuss that later. We then eventually find the vampire in the club who's doing this. Actually, we do that before Gordon. Sorry, I'm lot of order here. And he's just trying to replace the daughter that Gordon killed. And then he turns Gordon in some kind of vengeance move, which is traumatic in its own way, despite Gordon's history. And then Gordon kills these vampires anyways and decides the last good thing he'll do with himself. The last two good things he'll do with himself to quote himself is to kill Sam and then himself, which leads him to setting a trap, separating Sam from Dean. And then the final confrontation where in the end, Sam kills Gordon with virtually his bare hands. And then we have the most emotionally devastating bro moment in the history of TV that was so emotionally strong that I cried at work.
0: It was a tough episode.
1: The Gordon stuff on its own was tough. Having that final moment. How about we go through the long game? Give me uh, the important things to stick with before we hop into story time.
0: We finally find out that Gordon dies. That is the end of his run with Supernatural. We also find out a lot more about what I will called Baby Vamps, as I would borrow from True Blood. So we find out a little bit about what happens to humans right after they are made to be vampires. So a little bit about that transformation process and the confusion that comes with
1: that. Part of this episode, despite being so good for so many reasons, is also so good for so many other reasons.
0: It's also really harmful (laughs) for a lot of reasons. I am going to come right out and say it that I think it's notable that yet another Gordon episode, and not in the least, you know, his last episode, cold opens with Gordon threatening a white woman. We know the writing team sees Gordon as dangerous, and there's really no reason to use and reinforce
1: racist tropes. Super small tangent, but we've done this before. This is writing Gordon as a blank slate and ignoring the fact that he is a black man. Because if you put a white person in these roles, you're able to have the vampire thing be the core thing. Because he's a black man, there is constantly this shadow of racism over everything he does. And the fact that the team is not responsible with this is just a huge failing.
0: Well, it's also present all the time because the show sort of refuses to acknowledge it, right? There's like a complete refusal to, to tackle head-on uh, the topic of racism.
1: I think this is a case of you're trying to just not touch it with a 10 foot pole and you're by not touching it, making it worse.
0: In that same scene, which is when Gordon is threatening Bella in order to find out about where Sam and Dean are, Bella tells him to shoot her. And she doesn't seem afraid to die in the same way that she was in the last episode. And so I'd like for us to remember that.
1: I, I didn't even really think about that. I, I, I caught her being, I think cocky is the right word, but in a very positive way, if I could say it. I'm sure there's a better word for that.
0: Confident, perhaps? Why
1: couldn't I think of the word confident?
0: (laughs) I don't know, but that happens. That's okay. I like cocky for her. It
1: works. Even in confidence, there's a bit of cockiness to it. There's like, I know I can get away with this with the like, I don't know I can get away with this, but I'm going to try anyways because I know I'm that good. It's a little bit of the Dean coming through there.
0: Love it for her.
1: Shall we head to story time?
0: This week, we meet the brothers in the middle of a vampire hunt, like you said. Dean is being particularly reckless, basically offering himself up as bait to Lucy, who is played by Mercedes McNabb, who played Harmony and Buffy. It took
1: me so long to put that together, and I didn't want to look it up, and it was like a day later, I was like, ah, Harmony!
0: Uh, Not the last time that we'll see Buffy alumni. The episode starts really early in establishing a link between vampires, Lust, and Dean. So Dean, again, offers himself up as bait, which he has done in previous vampire episodes. I'm thinking particularly about Dead Man's Blood. And Lucy tries to bite his neck. If we want to take this a step further, I also noticed that Dean sets his machete aside, and blades are often used as phallic symbols in media and literature. So, So I'm not too sure what the intended meaning is here, but it's there for us to kind of try to take in.
1: For me, it was very much the... To use my word of the day again, the cockiness of I don't need this thing to fight you in an attempt to kind of bait Lucy out, but also to prove to himself that he could beat her without it.
0: It was for him to sort of say, like, I don't even need this and I'm still going to win. They do manage to subdue Lucy and to tie her up, like again, like in your recap, and they realize that things may not be as clear cut as they thought.
1: Yeah, I mean, we basically get here the full reversal of heart, which is someone who doesn't understand what's happening and can't make the decision to end their own life or ask the brothers to do it for them, realizing what they've become. And they instead need to force it upon her because there is no way to really rectify this other than like keeping her around until she realizes that she's a vampire and then like hope she turns herself in. Like, no, there really isn't a way to get out of this one.
0: Sam bargains with her and he tells her that if she tells them what happened, they're going to let her go. Knowing full well that they can't do that and that they're going to have to kill her. What did you think of that?
1: This entire season has just been Sam, and I think, again, this episode is the great point to bring it up because he does call it out, essentially, has kind of just given up a little bit on humanity. This same scenario two seasons ago or even a season and a half ago would have been not so much lying as trying to make her understand why they have to do what they're doing. And like Dean would eventually have to go like, I'm sorry, Sam, there's no other way, but to have Sam just be like, I'm going to lie to you through my teeth, knowing full well that one of us is going to kill you.
0: There's definitely a despondency in the way he's behaving. And it's, I mean, I find that it's understandable because all of his thoughts are busy with worrying about trying to save dean
1: true i think that's the other thing too is that in this scenario where we are seeing this side of sam that seems so out of character he's still in the right like it feels weird defending him being more murdery than normal but he's not wrong like at the end of the day lying to her and ultimately having to kill her was the only option they really had He was just a lot more blunt about it. And I think you're right. It's a matter of he can't be distracted. He needs to get through this so he can get onto the task at hand, which is saving Dean.
0: I'm not entirely sure that I would say that he was in the right necessarily, but I definitely understand why he did what he did.
1: He believes he's in the right. He's not just killing someone because they may be evil. He's like, I have a vampire in front of me. I have to kill it. There's no gray area to me here.
0: But there you go. Like he's simplifying a lot of things into black and white instead of looking at all of the shades of gray that he used to in previous seasons. And I I don't think that that's out of character. I think that that's where he is at the moment. But like if we compare it to like where he was before, of course, it seems like it's, you know, not Sam. But this is Sam now.
1: This is an evolution of Sam that we've, I think is very sudden between season two and season three. But it's the Sam we have now and it's, Truly him being true to himself.
0: It's a response to trauma. This is actually where I'd like to start drawing a parallel in preparation for critical time. Lucy was given vampirism, which Dean describes as a virus from Dixon. She then went off and killed three people unknowingly. And I say unknowingly because she doesn't know that she can even do that. All she knows is that she has these unexplainable symptoms. And the only way to make these symptoms stop and to stop her from killing others, is for her to die. And in the following scene, Gordon and Kubrick also refer to vampirism as a virus, and check that there was no blood-to-blood contact with the victim in the hospital.
1: Oh, a virus of the blood. I think I can see where we're going with this.
0: A virus of the blood for creatures that are queer-coded. I wonder where we're going. But we do get a little interlude from, you know, the... <laughs> the harmful tropes that are to come, just to see Dean being super reckless again. And Sam called him out on it again. At first, I thought it was about like, well, I'm going to die anyway. What's the difference between now or in a few months? But then I realized that maybe it has more to do with not being able to handle the countdown anymore. Like just wanting it to be over so that he doesn't have the threat looming over his head anymore.
1: Oh, and that makes so much sense. I mean, to have something... Haunting you to have basically a date in the calendar where you know you're expiring. That's enough to drive most sane people, you know, into hysterics, into delirium, into not knowing what to do next. I mean, the fact that he's still doing what he does because he feels he has to for Sam is the only reason he's probably still doing this.
0: What did you make of the conversation with Bella?
1: With Gordon, she continues this playfulness she tends to have, which I guess comes from this confidence and or cocky mood she carries with her. And it makes her a fun character and makes her lovable and makes her so intriguing to watch. And then when she speaks to Dean, she does the same thing with the, oh, I meant to call you. I figured it was two against one. You'd be fine. Like they're old friends. She's being chummy. This feels like the same way they joked around during the last episode together. And then Dean's comment about, well, comment his threat of, if we get out of this, I'm going to find you and I'm going to kill you. And very suddenly, she drops the facade. She is suddenly serious. For the first time, we really see her go, excuse me. And I think it's the fact that she is so like Dean, as we've discussed, that she actually believes him. She's realized this is no longer, you know, joking sarcasm. This is a serious threat.
0: You know, you're bringing a really interesting, like, narrative explanation to this because (laughs) I did not like that exchange, especially after last episode. I feel like she would have called them back to give them a heads up. And it feels like she was more used as a plot device in order to further the development of the brothers, the male characters, with no real thought for her own character. So, like, my concern is more critical with this moment, But I love this narrative explanation. Yeah,
1: and if we can break critical for a second, I think you are right. I think this is a very easily a flaw in the episode design, whether this be directorial, editorial or written. I believe I can easily see that because that just feels like a very this shows production to do kind of move. The fact that I think it still works well in the story. Like, I can believe Bella not giving them the heads up because she really does believe they could handle it and then making light of it when she finally hears back from them.
0: Absolutely, especially if she was really convinced that it would be fine. Can we switch gears and talk about Sam and Dean fully setting out to kill Gordon? Like, what did you think of Sam's resolve here?
1: This goes back to what I said earlier. This is very much Sam taking away the gray, looking at the black and white and going, either he kills us or we kill him. And I'm not ready to die. Sam, several weeks ago, would have been, let's get him arrested again. Let's call the police. Let's figure something out. And he's just like, no, 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 no. We're cutting to the end game. And I feel like this is just a Sam thing. I've never made this connection. This is every good Superman comic.
0: Oh, please explain.
1: A lot of my favorite Superman writing is the fact that Superman is this character that is believed to be this a beacon of good. He is like the perfect, like, America's sweetheart. So when he snaps and decides that he is better than other humans and has to make decisions that other humans can't make. And very famously, this is getting rid of criminals who are no longer worth saving versus just locking them up until they can eventually get out and do harm again. And this generally comes with the combativeness of Batman being like, no, we don't kill. But this is very much that moment where there's, there's no more putting Gordon away because he's just gonna come back, and he'll just harm more people, and eventually kill us. So we're gonna cut to the end. I'm the bigger person here, and I believe in myself, and I believe I'm right, and we're gonna kill Gordon.
0: Hmm, what an interesting um, moment in the hero's journey for Sam.
1: This is tough. I mean, this is literally comic books. <laughs> the number of Batman versus Superman comics that were written with this exact subject of just Do you keep trying and being better than the villain? Or do you treat yourself as better and do something worse?
0: That's a really good question.
1: The thought process should have been, if I were in their shoes, how do we resolve this without murdering a human? And then luckily the show gives them a free out in that case.
0: (sighs) Quote unquote, luckily I think for... The boys' image in the eyes of the audience, Gordon is now a vampire, which we'll talk about at length in Critical Time. So he kills the two baby vamps, he attacks the men in the dark alley, and now Sam and Dean are tracking him, and they find Dixon, who is devastated by the loss of his second found family. And in that moment, the writing team made a very telling decision for me. Dixon says, You ever felt desperate? I've lost everyone I loved. I'm staring down eternity alone. Can you think of a worse hell? And this could have been said to Sam, especially since he's the one who's about to be living his life alone once he loses Dean. But Dixon says this to Dean. And of course it echoes the choice that he made in All Hell Breaks Loose Part Two, which was, you know, the whole demon deal. But there's something so quintessentially queer about this moment. Because you do lose people when you come out, and some people lose everyone they love. And looking at this through the lens of the episode, even when you do build some found family, you can lose them to violence, to suicide, to illness, and of course, because of the theme of this episode, I'm thinking specifically about HIV or AIDS here. This is another instance of the show making Dean relate to a queer-coded vampire.
1: The fact that he says it's the Dean instead of Sam was telling in the first place of just like, whose story are we telling this episode? But then when you really do give it that lens, when you really look at the way they've treated vampires up to this point, and I'm sure more going forward, it is abundantly clear that this is talking to Dean, not so much in what's about to happen, but in the life he has been living.
0: And Sam picks up on this conversation because he brings it up the next time that we see Sam and Dean together, because Dean is again being reckless and he wants to go after Gordon by himself. And then Sam calls him out on it. He says, so you're the guy with nothing to lose now. Oh, wait, let me guess, because you're already dead. Like very, I, Sam is so sassy. I love him so much. Dean replies to this, if the shoe fits. Now remember that this was a massively queer-coded moment and Dean basically said that the queer shoe fits him. Yeah, I know that this is something you wanted. So like how did you feel when it happened?
1: This is my like my coworkers in the office staring at me as I'm sitting there clapping my hands to a TV show with my headphones on. This is what I wait for every season pretty much and season 1 to season 2 it took it right to the end to get there really. But this is the moment of them both being in the right headspace to talk to each other, even though it starts with Sam being a little more aggressive, it does meet Dean at the right level and they're able to come together and have a conversation, which, as you've heard me rant about in the last three episodes, maybe, where they tried to and didn't, they finally get to have a conversation. And though it doesn't resolve fully in that moment, Dean at least admitting to Sam that he's right and they will bunker down for the night and stay together and do everything they can to protect themselves is just so heartfelt.
0: And this is echoed, and this is kind of like expanded on in the final scene.
1: I guess we have to talk about, this is a very men being men moment. And as, again, I've been able to bring to the show the being raised as a straight man view of this, the very unfortunately raised male gaze, this to me is like an ultimate brotherly moment and there's no words there's no crying there's no emotion there's like a moment where sam puts two and two together and realizes what's happening and you can kind of see it in him and rather than be sad and think about what this means they can just live in this moment and share something so precious and it also made me think of something else uh, a voicemail from a few weeks ago talking about baby and how this car is basically a metaphor for family. And this is Dean saying, uh, you know, family isn't perfect. It takes work. And when I'm not here to hold everything together, I need to make sure that you're going to be okay on your own and find your own family and build your people. Just like you repaired this car. I'm going to cry again.
0: Oh, true. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And, and it sort of starts with Sam, I think anyway, trying to make up for shutting Dean down in the last episode, right? Yeah. That was clearly so upsetting to you. It, like you said, it was just a really touching moment. And it's a reminder for Dean that he's not alone, I will say, because I am the official party pooper on this podcast. I have mixed feelings about Sam asking Dean to drop the act and be his brother again. because I feel like that's again asking Dean to center Sam instead of centering Dean at At the same time, okay? Because they're mixed feelings at the same time. I think that when someone's experiencing suicidal ideation, it's it's important to remember, that they're needed here. It's important for them to remember that they're needed here. And Sam is doing that for Dean in this moment. So it's really bittersweet for me. But again, very touching, very cathartic moment. And I enjoyed it.
1: I think bittersweet's the perfect word for it. You're right. It's, it's very, I, I feel both ways on that one now that you've said it. And I don't know where to land. And I'm okay with that being kind of in flux.
0: There you go. I feel like that's totally fine because, you know, at the end of the day, <sighs> Dean's not going to die at the hands of a vampire just because he decided to recklessly jump into a fight. Right. And so perhaps, perhaps that's, um, that's a win just for today.
1: Shall we hit the critical time? So I may have said I know who wrote this episode because I caught it in the credits and it seemed very obvious, but would you like to let the listeners know who wrote it?
0: The writer was Sarah Gamble. And our director? The director was Kim Manners.
1: They, they've done a lot together. I feel like they're a pretty, like, continuous duo, these two.
0: They're two people who are, like, regulars on, as part of the crew. In this vampire-themed episode, would you like to give us a little bit of lore about vampires?
1: To try to do a vampire lore segment would take the rest of our living lives and probably a bit of our afterlives. There's too much. So I figured I'd take one small, fun little thing about vampires and make that today's lore segment. And that will be how to kill a vampire 101. Sorry, how to deter a vampire in this case. Actually, so I'm going to start with the classic garlic. I believe everyone knows the classic garlic wards off vampires. I feel like very few people know where that comes from. This actually does have roots in the real world because, unfortunately, throughout Europe, there was a pretty bad case of rabies around the 1720s. Not just many animals, but many people had rabies as well. And rabies is often linked to vampirism because a lot of the symptoms of rabies, this kind of erratic behavior, there's actually apparently even with uh, with it because you have a heightened sense of, uh, heightened senses essentially, There's a a aversion to sunlight because it's too bright. So there's actually like a lot of these ties and these people tended to go almost like a feral dog foaming at the mouth and biting people. And, you know, the foam uh, foaming from that actually was very bloody also because they ended up biting their own like tongues. A lot of the imagery of vampires kind of ties to rabies in a weirdly creepy way. All of this to say it came with heightened senses and a very strong sense we all already have is our sense of smell. So having that heightened to an nth level and then being presented with something that is already pretty strong would actually often cause someone with rabies to be repelled. And this was garlic. So in a time when people were actually worried and being attacked by these rabid either people or animals, garlic was used to ward them off. And this eventually bled into the Legend of the Vampire. Next again, going with the classics, the stake through the heart. This one's almost worse than the legend because the legend really is just like you drive a wooden stake through a vampire's heart, it kills them. Okay, I mean, you drive a wooden stake through most things heart, you're going to kill it. There isn't much there to it. But the specific reason why it was tied to vampires was a belief that people, or specifically the dead, were leaving their graves at night to harass and attack family and they needed to find a way to keep them in the grave. So a wooden stake, uh, hammered through you into the ground was pretty good at that. There is a lot of legends about the, uh, the dead returning to haunt their own families that actually ties to tuberculosis of all things. Lastly, this legend came up and I will say I have never heard this one before, but apparently it's a thing. And again, Europe, uh, specifically the 1500s, you could stop a vampire by placing a brick in between its teeth.
0: Sir, I'd like to place a brick between your fangs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, this was a thing. And the weirdest part is no one is exactly sure why, but bodies were exhumed and found to have bricks placed in the mouth, basically caught between the two uh, canines. The only thing that has been found is apparently a German text from several years earlier referring to something called the chewing dead, where they apparently found corpses that were only partially decomposed because they were exhumed early and were found to have been like eating dirt or even their own hands within the grave. Like, I really I looked for more information. I really couldn't find any. So I'm not sure if this was just a weird, like maybe something underground, like an animal was doing it and they blamed it on the corpse itself. But this then led to the idea of the corpses reanimating and eating other corpses. So the brick stopped that because, well, it's a brick in your mouth.
0: Yes, that would certainly do the job in in making sure that you're not biting.
1: So there is your vampire lore. So keep your garlic close for vampires or people with rabies. If you're worried about your dead... Stake them to the bottom of their grave so they can't get out. If you're really worried about a corpse eating another corpse, just stick a brick in its mouth.
0: Thank you. I needed that. Do you have any critical thoughts about this episode that are a little more serious? I have many critical thoughts about this episode that are very serious. The moment where Dixon captures Gordon and they're having a conversation, that conversation like, truly made me feel like I was being hate-crimed in real time. So Dixon is talking about the women that he's captured, and he tells Gordon that they're his family, which, by the way, hints at the most negative understanding of found family ever. He then tells him that hunters are the reason why his people are nearly extinct, and Gordon responds with, your people are going extinct because you're a bunch of mindless, bloodthirsty animals. He also calls the women Fang whores. And we've talked about how Fang is being used here as basically the homophobic F slur in Supernatural. And this happened in another Gordon episode. So there's no denying that there's a link there. And the reason why I'm bringing this up again is to explain that the show, on a meta level, is fully aware of what it's doing. And this isn't me overreading it, this is exactly what the show wants me to understand. And then there's basically the coup de grâce for me. So Gordon calls the queer-coded character a slur, and then Dixon tells him to watch his mouth, and Gordon says, I forgot, you're just a misunderstood victim, even though you murder and spread your filthy disease on pure base instinct. You got less humanity than a sewer rat. I know that these words can be really, really triggering for some people, particularly for older queer folks, so I'm I'm trying to pace myself here. But it, re- it gets worse, because as revenge for what he said, Dixon takes out his knife, and remember what we said earlier about knives being phallic, and spreads his filthy disease to Gordon, figuratively raping him. And the rest of the episode is not subtle about Gordon being twice the monster that he was previously shown to be, because now he's black and he's queer. And sure, we can assume that no one on the production really meant for that message to be sent by their work. If they had tried to send a more harmful message, they couldn't have done it. What I'm saying is that the show queer-coded vampires and then used vampirism as an allegory for the HIV-AIDS crisis of the 80s and the 90s.
1: There was a legitimate fear... That you could get AIDS or HIV from a homosexual person, almost as if it was being weaponized against you as a straight person. And they've literally had this character who was being queer coded do that.
0: We can, to a certain degree, to a very, very small extent... We can say that, especially in the 80s, when we didn't understand what HIV was and the difference between HIV and AIDS and all of that, how it spread, how it was contracted, etc., we can sort of understand that there was, again, this misunderstanding, this mistrust of the disease, which I'm sorry, but in 2007, 2008, we knew... There was no reason for this. We know better. We knew better in 2008. We knew that undetectable is untransmissible. We, We knew all of these things. And yet we were using tropes from literally 30 years prior in order to weaponize queerness and to show it under a bad light.
1: I have no other words.
0: Would you have a personal reflection and a call to action this week?
1: Not an easy one. This episode, I was able to find my love for this episode in certain emotional beats. And I think that's where I kind of made comfort for myself in this episode. And as much as the episode towards the end with Sam and Dean really did hit me, I think brings up a very important message about finding your worth. We've in this episode discussed the idea of Dean feeling like he's on a clock, there's a timer, and he is to expire, as I've often said. Up until now, that's very much been an excuse to be reckless. But at the end of this episode, he decides this is now precious time to spend with his brother to teach, to care, to protect. I mean, he was always going to protect Sam, but now it's, let me make sure Sam is better off once I'm gone, because I won't be here afterwards. Versus just going out in a puff of smoke in a heroically stupid moment. The self-reflection in this is, is as dark as that scenario is, and it's hard to really connect to it, and I'm glad I don't have to. I can still draw from that, that it's important to know your worth and to help those around you.
0: So that sentence that I don't like, that line that I didn't like about, you know, drop the act and be my brother again. I think that what Sam is trying, hearing your reflection, I think... That Sam is telling Dean, you are worth more than what you can bring to people. You are worth something because of who you are. And you are my brother. Please find worth in
1: that. And I think it's also important to reflect that your entire worth isn't in what you bring to others, but a part of it. You know, there is a part of Dean that is Sam's brother, that is a connection, that is emotional, that is important, but that shouldn't be all Dean is. And I think in that moment, it's just Sam trying to help make that connection.
0: To connect him back to his humanity, I guess.
1: And you, Mary, your reflections and call to action this week?
0: I'm not going to lie. I had to take breaks while I was doing the analysis because it was so overwhelming. Like, no lies. It took me four hours to do this episode. It never takes me that long. But it took me four hours to really break it down because I had to take breaks. When I was taking one of these breaks, I was talking to a friend who... basically reminded me of how important the work of deconstructing these episodes is. And it sounds really like conceited, I guess, but I really do think that what we're doing is important because we're helping people look at media through a more critical lens and to be able to understand, one, what they want to take away from from the piece of media, but also, two, what people are trying to sell them The because, you know, I the propaganda that people are trying to sell them. And in this case, the propaganda being sold is that queerness is dangerous, particularly queer men. So my call to action is to continue to analyze the series through the lens of the people that it keeps misrepresenting.
1: You know, it's really rare that I get to do this in such a way where I don't feel like I'm being, as I've said already, cocky. You know what? It's nice to toot our own horn a little bit and just say, like, I feel like we're doing a good job here. You know, I look at the voicemails we receive that we get to share with our listeners every week and hear from people who are thankful we do what we're doing. And if it means taking episodes like this that are so harmful, but being able to use them in a way to learn and grow, I think that's incredible. And I thank you for putting words on our actions.
0: Shall we go and listen to what our community has to say
1: this week? I can't wait. This week we have a voicemail from Luisa.
2: Hi, Mahi, Hi, Drew. How are you guys? My name is Luisa. I am a Brazilian listening to your podcast, and I want to start off by saying that I am a huge fan. Uh, it's been such a joy to find this podcast. I've even started rewatching the series to keep up with you guys. And it's been a great experience, so thank you for all the amazing work and the care that you put into uh, this product that you're giving us, and it is amazing. And I'm here today to talk a little bit about something you guys said uh, discussing the episode 2.11, Playthings. On the episode 2.10, one episode prior so, you guys talked a little bit about how John's voice was so predominant on Dean's head that it had even stopped him from showing any aspects of his bisexuality and uh, because we hadn't seen any of it on on the second season yet. And how much that showed how John would control Dean and define Dean and make Dean repress parts of himself. And I wanted to talk about this because on episode 2.11, Playthings, we get the first sign of Jean's bisexuality on the season, uh, first with the Fred and Daphne comment and some other uh, little bits and pieces on the on the episode. And we keep on seeing some little things on the rest of the season. And the way I read that, for the character, not for a thorough intent, is um, John's predominance on Jean's mind was so great while he was carrying the, the burden of the secret alone that he uh reflected back to complete repression and to act exactly as he would with john around so re- repeating several johnisms and being very aggressive and very uh alpha male and also uh very shoot first ask questions later really acting like a soldier and angry all the time, so at the same time, emulating his father and the way he would behave when his father was there, so at the moment, he shares that burden, and he lowers the John voice down on his head, so he um, he's not so
3: completely overwhelmed by John's hand, a forcible hand, He relaxes a bit. And on the next episode, right after that, we are already seeing a lighter version of Dean that is uh, more centered, more relaxed, even to the point as he can make some comments, even if he doesn't intend to, that allude to his bisexuality, such as the Fred and Daphne comment. And I think that that goes to show how much uh, John Winchester's A plus parenting leaves a mark on Dean that. Regulates his sexuality to the point that even after his father's death, he cannot dissociate from that image of who his father expects him to be, and um, how much that is distant from who he actually is. And that just breaks my heart every time. Um, as a queer woman uh, who's been in the closet for a long time and is already approaching jeans age, when the show starts, I actually have Dean's age when the show starts now, just realized that, it is very hard to watch that and to see how much pain that can bring to a person to live uh, with the knowledge that someone that you love, that you respect, and that you need in your life would not accept you, and to understand that even after they have passed, this still in some way, feels like a violation of that memory, even if that memory is one of violence, is a very difficult feeling to push away and to solve uh, until you understand that there is nothing wrong with you, even though uh, that person could never understand that. And I really empathize with that, and I really, uh, I really like seeing Jean uh, in a lighter mood, not so. Uh, completely overwhelmed by his father, and to see how much of a quick difference just sharing that burden a little bit and diminishing the John voice in his brain had an effect. So uh, that is what I wanted to say to you guys. I'm sorry about the long voicemail. You can feel free to maybe cut it down, maybe edit it a little bit if you want to put it in the show. And if you don't want to put it in the show, I'm still just very happy to share this with you guys. Again, thank you so much for what you are doing and if you could please record Uh, more episodes, maybe twice a week. I don't know because I'm almost up to date with the show and I already know I need more because you guys are so great. Thank you so much and have a good one.
0: Luisa, thank you so much for this lovely voicemail. Absolutely lovely. I find it interesting how it seems like lately a lot of the voicemails that we're listening to on specific episodes have ties to this specific episode, or are applicable, some of the analyses that are made, are applicable in the episode that we're doing. And this is entirely by chance, because we don't listen to them before recording night, so that we have a truly real response, I guess, or or unscripted response to the voicemails. And I find that what you're saying about John's memory, I think you said the words like, regulates his sexuality, I mean, that's what we're seeing in this episode, right? I mean, we've made parallels before between John and Gordon, and here that's exactly what's happening. Gordon is completely disapproving. He hates fangs. He hates them. We know this. We have Sam who then has to remind Dean that he, is, he has worth just for who he is. Only then does Dean become a little bit, I mean, a little bit less suicidal, basically, if we're going to use words. That truly describe his state of mind. I absolutely agree with you. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. We really, really appreciate it. And by the way, no no excuses about your accent. You, you speak beautifully. Thank you so much for sharing this with us.
1: A phenomenal voicemail. And again, I will also compliment the accent. I love listening to people speak with accents. I could just like, melts me a little bit. I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't do the whole ASMR thing, but someone with like a, a fun, like perfect, beautiful accent, like any dialect, just like, tell me a story. On the story you did tell in this voicemail, I I definitely understand where it's coming from. I definitely see it. I feel like you put it into such good words that it became so apparent. As soon as Dean can get out of his own head, which is kind of where the voice of John lives, we start to see this more fun Dean. And then we start to see little, I don't want to call them slip-ups, but like moments of clarity where the true Dean can shine through. A phenomenal example being the The running into Fred and Daphne thing or just a lot of those little cute moments, even in that episode uh, 11 of season two. And then I also go back to Dean being on a movie set in Hollywood Babylon, you know, where he makes some comments that kind of have us go like, why do you remember this really specific hunky actor from a movie? But he's in his happy place. He's able to be himself and be around the things he enjoys. And the true Dean comes through, you know, when he's in a place where he can love himself and forget about John for a bit. He can be himself, and that's beautiful.
0: Also, just to, just to clarify, sadly, we won't be able to record episodes twice a week. <laughs> we just don't have the resources at the moment. We would love to, but it's just not a possibility right now. We have great fun doing this. We enjoy it, and we love, we love to see the impact that it has. So thank you, thank you so much for, for your voicemail, Luisa, and thank you for all of the voicemails that we receive. We really appreciate each and
1: every one of them. I will secretly say I think my favorite part of every recording session is getting to that voicemail. It scares me to know what we're going to come across because sometimes it is like emotionally damaging, and like we've cried at those before. Some as much as we have some of the episodes, but I feel like every voicemail has is just so much fun and so magical that it's so great to hear them all.
0: Would you like to share your crossroads deal with us this week? Let's
1: go. I wanted to pick a crossroads deal in this episode that didn't touch the big issues because those were too big. Like, yes, drop all the HIV, like queer shaming bullshit. Great. There's no episode left. It's no good. The solution is don't do it. This isn't a crossroads deal. That is just common sense. So I wanted a crossroads deal. There was one thing in this episode that just hit me the wrong way. Sam Litters. At the end of the episode, in that amazingly heartfelt moment, he opens their beers and he flicks the bottle cap onto the side of the highway.
0: That was so unnecessary, Sam.
1: I feel like I read too much into this, and I think it's just, it was a moment and it means nothing, but it legitimately left me, like, at the end of the episode being like, really? They had to sour the Sam part of this episode with him littering of all people? Like, Dean? I don't approve, but I get it? Sam, my tallest bean, littering.
0: I love that we have such high standards for Sam <laughs> as high, as high and tall as he is. He can
1: murder a vampire with his bare hands, but littering.
0: Yeah. I draw the line at littering. <laughs>
1: like it just, it almost feels like for all the stuff we've talked about of Sam, like changing, like throughout the season, it almost feels like if this was intentional, it's to prove that he like, he's more like, I don't care anymore which I don't think is the case. So I think just like have him pocket the bottle cap, toss it in the backseat of the car. I mean, anything but litter. That's it. That's all I have. What do you got this week?
0: I completely agree that this is literally just one of those, like just toss it all out with the bathwater kind of thing. Like it's just, it's unsalvageable. Just trash it and trash it. But if I'm allowed to change just one thing, it's again to do with Sam. <laughs> And it's a really small thing, too. Sam didn't have to destroy the phones for Gordon not to track them. We've both worked, (laughs) like, in cell phones, activating phones. We used to work together doing that. So we know. We've worked with, with cell phone carriers. All he needed to do was to just turn them off. Even if he wanted to make extra sure, he could have just removed the SIM card and broken the SIM card at most. There was no need to destroy the phone, Sam.
1: That's such a one of those like stupid TV movie cliches like people think they have to do this. You know what, too? I remember watching that scene and being like, really, Sam? You're smarter than that.
0: It just felt very dramatic for absolutely no reason. Like, they could have reused the phones. Like, there was no need for that. Change the SIM card and you're good. Like...
1: You know what? I'm okay with Sam being a little on the murdery side of things. But, like, not smart and littering, I can't do it. Breaks the illusion. (laughs) you've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigouroux, and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support.
0: This week, we'd like to thank Luisa for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.
1: And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. Our January live event will be decided by our patrons. You can use the link in all our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carrying wayward. Until next week.
0: Carry on, our wayward friends. Wah, wah, I want, like, the thing is, this, this one is heavy, so I need to, like, focus on what we're doing.
1: Okay, because I didn't say eight. Um,
0: you didn't say eight?
1: No. <laughs> I skipped. I didn't know <laughs> Okay, I'm ready when you are. You skip
0: the wrong one. Seven, eight, nine. <laughs>